With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, storage and handling guides for walnut retailers and industry professionals. And the Integrative Center for Alternative Meat and Protein is opening at UC Davis. But we start off today with Brian German. We're talking almonds again here today with BASF Tech Service Representative Jessica Samler. And now we know the importance of bloom and uh, how it impacts the almond industry itself. Uh, but taking a, a broader look at it here, Jessica, how does the success or failure of bloom uh, affect the overall market and, and the economy at large, both uh, locally here, but uh, globally as well? Yeah, absolutely. So no other country comes close to the U.S. and California for almond production. This state produces almost 80% of the world's almonds, and 30% of that stays here domestically for domestic consumption. But that leaves 70% that gets exported for global markets. So the success of our growers is absolutely paramount, of course, for our local economy. But then if we think from a global standpoint, the supply, so various products that are produced from the almonds that we produce, the jobs that are connected to that, so all of the import-export jobs, um, all of those local workers who are using almonds to produce uh, various things, and then you know all of that feeds into the economics. So it's, it's a really important crop, um, and I think sometimes we always think of the local local impacts, but it really is an exported global commodity that we produce here locally. So it has far-reaching impacts as well. And now we've touched a bit on um, the importance of pollination and, and pollinators during the bloom period, but as far as the trees individually uh, go, how can growers maybe best prepare soil and nutrients for their trees during almond bloom? So it's really um, it's really important to have good high quality nutritional products. They're vital to tree health. Uh, I consider your nutrients are kind of your your tree's multivitamin, right? And so you wanna have a good quality multivitamin. You wanna make sure those trees are getting everything that they need. Going hand in hand with that dough, particularly at bloom, your crop can also benefit um, from really strong fungicides um, like Maravon, like Pristine, that provide plant health benefits. Those aid in stress mitigation. So I equate those products almost to like the supplements that you take in addition to your multivitamins. Bloom is a major stress event for these trees. And so anything that we can do that helps mitigate some of the stress that they're feeling and helps them perform to their highest potential is really important, especially considering that almonds are a long-term crop. It's, you know, we don't we don't get to rip them out and start over again next year like some of our row crops. Um, these growers are in it for the long haul. So everything we can do to better prepare them uh, is really important. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. USDA and the U.S. Trade Representative's Office are accepting applications through January 31st for positions on the Federal Ag Trade Advisory Committees. Rod Bain reports. Interested individuals in the ag trade sector have until months end 
to apply for positions on federal agricultural trade advisory committees. The Agricultural Policy Advisory Committee. Then we have six agricultural technical advisory committees. Allison Thomas of USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service says the department, along with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, solicit input from committee members on various ag trade matters. Members are also afforded opportunities one to two times a year to come to Washington. The secretary and the ambassador meet with them and they hear firsthand on administration priorities and specific goals and objectives. And members are afforded the opportunity to formalize strategy and recommendations on what they want the administration to focus on. In terms of breaking down the specific focus of each group, Thomas starts by looking at APAC, Where we have members who provide advice and expertise on implementation and enforcement of existing agreements that are in place, as well as providing advice, recommendations, etc. on trade policy matters. While there are six total agricultural technical advisory committees. These are comprised of industry representatives as well as other groups and entities who are food and agriculture stakeholders with a specific focus on trade. They're broken out into sectors including animal and animal products, fruit and vegetables, grains, feeds, oil seeds and planting seeds, processed foods, sweeteners and sweetener products, and then tobacco, cotton, peanuts, and hemp. The members provide technical advice and recommendations and their expertise on a multitude of technical issues specific to their sector. Some considerations for applicants include one must have expertise in international trade, you must be a U.S. citizen, and you also will, if selected, have to qualify for a security clearance. Details on both advisory committees and the application process are available online at www.fas.usda.gov. Click the Topics tab on the homepage, then open the link to Trade Missions. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. In today's national spotlight, USDA's Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program continues its support of expanding biofuel production and use through recently announced project grant awards. Rod Bain reports. Almost $19 million in grants for projects in 22 states. That was the recent tally for the latest round of awards under the Agriculture Department's Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program. What we do is provide grants to fueling stations and distribution facility owners. So that includes marine oil, rail, home heating oil, in addition to what you might think as our gas stations. These grants are used to help expand access to biofuels. That's Teresa Greenfield, Iowa State Director for USDA's Rural Development. RD oversees the program, known in acronym form as HBIP. Grant monies can be used by those fueling station owners to install and upgrade their infrastructure. So fuel pumps, dispensers, storage tanks. Also among the biofuel uses and industries covered by HBIP, 
sustainable aviation fuel. We've got a bright future when it comes to all of our clean fuels, and in particular, sustainable aviation fuel is something that the ethanol and biodiesel industry are interested in and are working hard to grow. Greenfield offers an example of a project in her home state, recently awarded a Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program grant as an illustration of such a proposal. Casey's General Store, for example, is receiving a $5 million grant, and they're going to be making improvements to stores across 75 communities in Iowa. As well as potential benefits from such opportunities. I lived in Buffalo Center for a while. That's up in the northern part of the state. I've got family and friends that live there, and I know they're excited to have these improvements made to the local Casey's because it's going to make a big difference to their family budgets when they're able to fill up their tank with a lower cross, homegrown biofuel. Those kinds of stories are going on across the state. And Iowans, they appreciate a penny and saving a dollar. And so being able to access our homegrown biofuels is a priority for them. HBIP is one part of USDA's efforts to expand clean energy production, marketing, and consumer demand in turn, building up this particular industry. Possibilities really are unlimited when it comes to what we can do with renewable fuels, and in particular biofuels. More details about the Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program is available online at www.rd.usda.gov slash HBIP. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, animal rights activists have been gearing up for 2024 and the livestock industry needs to be prepared. Abby Cornegie, Manager of Issues and Engagement for the Animal Agriculture Alliance, talks about what tactics to watch out for in the new year. Direct Action Everywhere has really pushed this Right to Rescue campaign and something they're really spreading. They actually held trainings across the country as part of their campaign earlier this year, having like a roadshow that goes across and does trainings. But we'll continue to see, I think, that legislation. They're really pushing members of the animal rights movement to make friends with their legislators, to become subject matter experts in their minds so they can become that go-to person to push forward legislation that is maybe not friendly to animal agriculture. Attacks and misinformation continue on social media platforms, but she says it's important to respond with the truth. Definitely. But we also don't want that to discourage you from posting that positive, proactive information that we all love. There's always going to be those people. But really, I think the bigger picture is the cybersecurity aspect of it. We've seen a lot of attacks on that cybersecurity front. So if you do have an online presence, make sure it's safe and secured. They can't hack into your account. We had an instance earlier this year of a pork farm in Canada where they actually took ransom their security footage and wanted them to come out and claim that there were animal welfare allegations on the farm. Cybersecurity is a growing threat in animal rights. So we just want to make everyone aware. She talks about what to do when faced with trouble from animal activism. Definitely stay strong in who you are. Don't give in to these groups. We say always it's really best to not engage. So if you can kind of hold out from the engagement, that's best. We don't have the same common ground as these folks. They don't want the same thing as us. We just don't want to even begin those negotiations. Definitely reach out to your local association, your co-op. Reach out to us at Animal Ag Alliance. You can report security threats. We can help spread that message so we can help protect others in your community. For more information, go to animalagalliance.org. In other livestock news, cheesemongers value the string of mozzarella and the squeak of a fresh cheese curd. But how can processors maintain that freshness and quality so that customers both near and far can enjoy the same experience? These are some of the questions the Center for Dairy Research at the University of Wisconsin is setting out to answer, says CDR Director John Lucy. 
Mozzarella still very important. Obviously, is the largest cheese produced uh, variety here in the U.S. And we continue to look at ways to control the functionality of it and add new kind of measures to how to control it in terms of functionality and performance. We have students working on what how what is blistering and how why does it form. You'd, you'd think that we'd be very on top of that. We know a lot about browning and blistering and things like cheeses like mozzarella, but this is a deeper dive into the kind of material science behind something like blistering. And we also are looking at fresh uh, cheese curds, squeaky cheese curds, and why is it so squeaky and recording the sounds of it and working with the, the, the audiology department here that record music and sounds, and they're helping us analyze that and figure out what is it about early cheese that's just been made that really is squeaky, and why does it lose the squeak? The hope is to find how to keep cheese curds fresh and squeaky for more than a few days. We're on trying to understand the science of it with the hope that maybe we can make something that lasts longer and then we can sell it across the U.S. And over the last five or ten years, we've done a lot of work on helping extend the shelf life of cheese, mainly for an export purposes here. So the effort is to help companies with a market for cheese find ways to improve the performance of cheese products. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director, Brian German. The California Walnut Board and Commission has been working to help the industry make improvements to overall nut quality. Director of Technical and Regulatory Affairs for the California Walnut Board and Commission, Joshua Ram, described some of their efforts. Quality is essential, imperative for any industry. Our, our walnut quality improvements being one of the major key pillars of our newly implemented strategic plan. Been working with the team on development of new storage and handling best practices guidelines for the industry and for them to use with their customers. We now have two versions of the storage and handling guide, one designed for retailers and the other for industry professionals. This guide features useful information on best practices for transportation, storage, and quality assurance of walnuts. The new guides are available at walnuts.org. DPH Biologicals has announced a significant transition in its ownership structure. DPH Biologicals has undergone a management-led buyout supported by a private investment group. Formed in 2018, the company will continue its operations under the DPH Biologicals brand. Mike Messman, the president and CEO, highlighted the company's robust growth driven by a focus on biological products. Based in Indianapolis and Princeton, DPH Biologicals has expanded sales and secured partnerships, adding over 30 new retail partners in the U.S. agricultural market. The management team is aiming to continue the company's growth with a pipeline of five novel biologicals that are set for sales in 2024. The company notes that collaborations with the University of Illinois and reorganization of business segments highlights a commitment to innovation and global expansion. Last week, members of the House Sustainable Energy and Environmental Coalition held a public roundtable discussing the Inflation Reduction Act's impactful investments in climate and clean energy solutions for American farmers. The discussion featured farmers sharing firsthand experiences of how the IRA funding has provided crucial support to farmer-led conservation efforts. Some of the panelists included farmers from Arkansas, Indiana, Oregon, and New York. The farmers highlighted the importance of the IRA's support for building resilience against climate change, addressing volatile farming aspects, and fostering sustainability. 
Lindy Phillips of Branch Mountain Farm highlighted both the value of supporting soil health, along with the financial and market-related obstacles hindering the widespread adoption of climate-friendly farming practices. The roundtable aimed to showcase the successes of the IRA in supporting American agriculture and the urgent need to continue such investments in the future. The University of California, Davis, is spearheading the establishment of the Integrative Center for Alternative Meat and Protein, known simply as iCamp. The center is designed to support large-scale commercialization and technical progress of alternative proteins, including cultivated meat, plant and fungal-based foods, and hybrid products combining conventional and alternative proteins. Recently launched on January 17th, iCamp aims to bring together researchers, academic institutions, industry professionals, advocacy groups, and food innovators. The center will be addressing challenges such as consumer acceptance and preference for alternative proteins, taste, nutrition, shelf life, and cost considerations. The initiative supported by a $5 million funding allocation from the California Legislature for Alternative Protein Research at three UC campuses, including UC Davis. Farm Foundation and the U.S. Department of Agriculture are hosting a two-day virtual conference focused on diversity in agricultural policy in March. The Agricultural Policy, Economics, and Diverse Farms and Farmers virtual conference will be taking place on March 5th and 6th. Through a mix of panel discussions and paper presentations, the virtual conference has several goals. One is to expand the existing knowledge base of how diversity in U.S. agriculture, both of farmers and farm operations, interacts with ag policy. It's also aimed at initiating discussion on farmer equity and inclusion in U.S. agricultural policy, as well as to better understand the data available to explore these linkages, as well as identify data gaps. Finally, the conference is aimed at fostering networks of researchers, policymakers, and industry professionals working on the issues. More information on the upcoming conference is available at farmfoundation.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Combine harvester sales closed out the year ahead of 2022 levels, while most of all tractor segments saw declines in both the United States and Canada. Michael Clement shares more in today's This Land of Ours report. The latest data from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers shows total U.S. farm tractor sales fell 5.1% in December compared to 2022, while year-to-date sales came in 8.7% lower than a year ago. However, AEM Senior Vice President Kurt Blade says it's a mixed bag among the segments. We saw some real strength in the traditional ag markets, whether that's self-propelled combines, articulated four-wheel drive tractors, and those tractors over 100 horsepower all saw decent growth throughout the entire year year. But we did see softness in those smaller horsepower tractors. Under 40 horsepower tractors and 40 to 100 horsepower tractors were actually pretty soft for the entire year. And that indicates more of a consumer mindset than the traditional ag mindset. The under 40 horsepower segment saw a jump in sales during the COVID-19 pandemic that continued into 2022 before fulfilling much of that demand. Those were largely consumer models, not necessarily a traditional row crop audience. So when we see the declines in those numbers, I think that's more of an indication of that need had been met so strongly a few years ago. It's going to take a while for that market to kind of catch itself back up. On the flip side, looking at those row crop tractors, those tractors over 100 horsepower, seeing those up 5% year over year is really good indication of the traditional ag market continuing to be strong for off-road equipment. The data also shows strength in articulated four-wheel drive tractors, with sales up 30% in 2023. If you think about that size of tractor and the use of that tractor, that's a good indication of overall optimism in the ag market. That's a pretty large piece of equipment and a significant financial investment. But 
also know that some of that equipment goes into other sectors, including construction, which is accounted for in these numbers. But overall, seeing about 1,000 new units of articulated four-wheel drive sold in 23 versus 2022, that gives me a lot of hope for the future. Blade says he is confident in the strength of the equipment market and its long-term growth. I wish I had a crystal ball to look into 2024, but I can say people around the world have got to continue to eat. And the long-term outlook on agriculture continues to be strong. Folks don't buy a tractor or a combine or an articulated four-wheel drive tractor for next year's planting and harvest. They buy it for the next five to 10 years of operation. So yeah, there's certainly some storm clouds on the horizon, but long-term, agriculture continues to be a strong bet. Add to that, the advanced technology that's being incorporated into machines today is really driving new demands. Almost every manufacturer has a brand new piece of equipment that they're putting out there that is making significant gains for the farmer in their efficiency. The full reports can be found in the market data section of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers website, AEM.org. Michael Clements reporting. This is the AgNet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. Knowing what's true and what's false about tornadoes could someday save your life. Gary Crawford has more. Oh my God, this is not good. There's a whole roof that just came off. I've never seen anything like it. Houses are leveled. Some first-hand testimony to the power of tornadoes. I've never seen anything like this in my 18 years covering tornadoes. I had to hold on to the wall to keep myself safe. I didn't want to fly away in the tornado. We had to pull a car out of the front hallway off a teacher. And, uh, we even could basically feel the ground shake and like reverberations off of the, the, the power of the tornado. We're literally taking tremendous amount of atmospheric energy and turning into a giant vacuum cleaner. That's Agriculture Department meteorologist Brad Rippey who says that despite our actually being able to see dramatic real-time videos of these storms, there are still an awful lot of misconceptions, I guess you would call them myths, still floating around about tornadoes. They're about as prevalent as urban legends first one, some areas of geography, such as high elevations, some regions of the country, are completely protected from tornadoes. Wrong. In the late 80s, a tornado rushed across the mountaintops in Yellowstone National Park at the 10,000-foot level. There's an area you would not expect to see tornadic activity, so mountains are not safe, river valleys are not safe, and certain areas are more climatologically favored to see tornado activity due to the lay of the land, but you don't want to ever think of yourself as completely safe from tornadoes. And indeed, tornadoes have been reported in every state in the country. Here's another common belief. The low pressure associated with a tornado causes buildings to explode. But of course, that's wrong. The low pressure in a tornado, although strong, is not enough to cause a building to explode. Now, it's true that the winds of a strong tornado can level a house. But not by explosion. That would be just by sheer twisting and force of the wind. Which then explodes the next myth, that if we know a tornado's heading for our house, we should take time to open up all the windows to equalize the pressure. <laughs> Wrong again. Since tornado pressure cannot explode a house, opening the windows is useless. Forget about the windows and just try to get to a safe place, the lowest level of the house, or if you don't have that, maybe into a bathtub covered by blankets or a mattress or something to protect your body from flying debris. And finally, the most prevalent tornado myth of all, and many of us believe it for some reason, that, that maybe it's a metal construction or something, but anyway, that mobile home parks actually attract tornadoes. 
Wrong again. Brad Rippey says, yes, there may be more devastation, more death when a tornado hits a mobile home park, but... Tornadoes move through single-family home areas just as often as they move through mobile parks, but your level of destruction is going to be much more significant. Even a 70 or 80 mile an hour wind can toss a mobile home on its side if it hits it right, whereas a house with a foundation will withstand that force. And finally, here's something that's not a myth. Having a NOAA weather radio with an alert function that turns on automatically when there's a severe weather warning has saved many people's lives, and yes, it could save yours. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. USDA notes increases in both corn and soybean stocks, but what's behind the rise in both categories? Here's Rod Bain. What is the extent of our nation's supplies of major grain commodities? USDA's latest look, the January edition of its quarterly stocks report, indicate increases in stocks in most categories. Chris Hawthorne of the National Agricultural Statistics Service starts with corn and soybeans. Corn stocks came in at 12.2 billion bushels, up 12.5% from the same time last year. And just this is the first quarter past our beginning supply of 16.7%. Soybeans is estimated at 3 billion bushels, down 7 tenths of a percent from the same time last year. Total stocks are down on that lower production. As for analysis for the why behind the corn and bean stock forecast, USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer. They're way up at the top end of the range in terms of total stocks, and this is the first quarter, remember, but I think it goes back to the fact that we saw upward revisions on corn and upward revisions on soybean production. So in both cases, yields a little bit better than anticipated and in the case of corn, offsetting a modest downward revision in area. As for the quarterly stock forecast for wheat. December all wheat stocks at 1.41 billion bushels was up 7.5% from the same time last year. This is the second quarter of all wheat stocks. The beginning supply for this year was 2.38 billion bushels. U.S. wheat stocks expectations were right there in the middle of the pack. Other grade stocks were reported on by USDA in January. Sorghum at 188 million bushels, up 17.7% from the same time last year. Oats are 62.6 million bushels, up 16.5% from the previous year. Barley stocks at 142 million bushels is up 2.7% from the same time last year. Durham wheat at 41.3 million bushels, down 14.1% from the same time last year. In addition, a first look at stocks and other commodities took place this month. Among those, rice. December 2023 rough rice stocks at 138 million hundredweight is up 30.9% from the same time last year. California had the largest increase at 57.7% greater than last year. And hay. The December hay stocks came in at 76.7 million tons. That's up 6.9% from the previous season. Stocks are rebounding pretty much across the board from last year. The West has mostly rebounding states. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. We have something different instead of a featured interview today. The House Financial Services Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations held a hearing Thursday titled Oversight of the Security Exchange Commission's Proposed Climate Disclosure Rule. For this segment, we start with Representative John Rose of Tennessee, who focused on what the rule could do to farmers. As the owner of a family farm myself, I am most concerned by how this rule would impact the agricultural industry. In May of 2022, I led a bipartisan letter to Chairman Gensler that 117 of my colleagues signed, a bipartisan letter, 
highlighting the impacts that this proposed rule would have on farmers and the agriculture industry, particularly the scope three disclosures that are in the rule. The fact that Chairman Gensler and the SEC are still pursuing this rulemaking 20 months later only further indicates, in my view, the lack of understanding that unelected Washington bureaucrat bureaucrats have for the work that farmers do. Mr. Schultz, as a member of Michigan Farm Bureau and the owner and operator of your family farm, I am grateful that you are here today to represent the industry that is, in my view, the backbone of America. Can you give us an idea of how big your family farm is beyond what you said in your opening remarks and how many people work there? Thank you for the question, Congressman. I can tell you that on this time of year, we have about 10 individuals working on our farm, half family and half uh, regular staff. And then that might grow to uh, approximately 30 during the harvest season. Uh, our office staff consists of my mother, my sister, and myself when I can pitch in. So we don't have a separate department for that. I understand. And that's frankly typical of, of, of American farm farms across the country. Mr. Schultz, how would, how would a one-size-fits-all approach to disclosure requirements, like the one proposed by the SEC, frankly, impact family farms like yours and others in your community? Yeah, so I understand like the backbone of this rule was written for investors in Wall Street, but we live on County Road 652. So that's a little bit different. Uh, that, you know, builds the backbone of our community, if you will, small businesses, small farms. And so I, I think that the potential for this to kind of get carried away from its initial in, intention exists. And so if, this, if the scope three requirements that are in the proposed rule, as we've seen uh, so far, if they went into effect, and let's imagine that you had to hire somebody to work with you and your mom and your sister in that office mm -hmm. that was an expert in these areas to help you comply, and let's say that cost $50,000, well, you would just increase the price of cherries to recoup that 50000 right? That's how you'd approach this. Uh, unfortunately, that's not how it works in agriculture, so... Uh, besides what we sell direct to our, our, our customers at our market, uh, we have no idea what we're going to get paid oftentimes for what we deliver. Our cherry crop last year was picked in July, processed. It's in, it's in a freezer plant somewhere, and they will give us a final price in March, and we take what we get. Right. You're price takers, not price setters. That's correct. Another aspect of the proposed climate disclosure rule that worries me is the disregard for materiality. As an investor myself, I know that materiality has been, and a lawyer as well, has been the bedrock standard of securities law in this country to maintain fair and transparent markets. However, it also ensures that we are not being overly burdensome on companies and hurting market competitiveness. Mr. Crane, what would be the potential consequences if the SEC required the disclosure of non-material climate information? Absolutely. Thank you, Congressman. As you just articulated, immaterial disclosures by definition are pure cost drivers, right? A material disclosure is something that a reasonable investor would need to know to understand a business. An immaterial disclosure means that that investor doesn't need that information. So the only thing that comes from that is the cost on the business. And so we run a real risk with, as the amount of immaterial disclosures increase, corresponding cost on businesses continues to increase without any real investor benefit. And to be absolutely clear, public companies are already required to report every piece of material information, correct? That's exactly correct. Thank you. I see my time has expired. I yield back.
Next, questioning from California Representative Maxine Waters, a Democrat from the Los Angeles area, who addressed her questions first to a law professor, then to an attorney. Ms. Waters from California is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you very much. Georgie, Eeveev, opponents of the climate proposal have long argued that the SEC lacks the legal means to require companies disclose their emissions data and related risk. However, in a comment paper you submitted on the proposal, you go into great depth about the pre-existing authority of the commission. The commission has, you said, uh, they have the authority to promulgate such disclosure requirements, particularly in the area of environmental related matters. Could you briefly summarize how the SEC has legal authority to require that public companies disclose their climate risk and emissions metrics? Yes, the SEC's legal authority stems uh, back to the original statutes in the 1930s, uh, and this is an authority that the SEC has exercised time and time again for nine decades. So it's not something that uh, they just discovered uh, today or yesterday and decided to regulate. Uh, they have actually been continually engaged in the, the iterative improvement of the disclosure framework. This is uh, their mission, and this is what they've been very good at doing. Importantly, they've both expanded the disclosure framework and they've also scaled it back as the needs of the time and as markets and technology require. So it's not just an uh, ongoing process of expansion, it's actually a process of calibration and tailoring uh, and the SEC has been very uh, successful at doing that. Let me quote from the DC Circuit, which looked into this very question and they found that rather than casting disclosure rules in stone, Congress opted to rely on the discretion and expertise of the SEC for a determination of what types of disclosure would be desirable. The DC Circuit also said, the commission has been vested by Congress with broad discretionary powers to promulgate or not promulgate rules requiring disclosure of information beyond that specifically specified in the statute. The statute specifies about 32 categories of information and tells the SEC, look at that information and calibrate it on an ongoing basis. And the SEC has done uh, just that. So would you conclude that perhaps there needs to be legislation to clear up the question uh, so that the SEC feels more comfortable in its authority? Not really, because this is not uh, a question that uh, should be contested or is contested. The courts have spoken, uh, the SEC has exercised this authority, and by not prohibiting the SEC from uh, promulgating disclosure rules, Congress has acquiesced to the SEC's actions. So uh, additional legislation uh, could always be helpful, but it's not necessary. And there are many other things uh, that are before Congress that are much more contested and more important. Thank you. Mr. Cunningham. On your law firm, Mayor Brown's website, it states that I quote, environmental, social, and governance, that is ESG, considerations are increasingly high priorities for global businesses. Mayor Brown has a strong track record in helping clients around the world address ESG issues. Recognizing the importance of ESG principles to its clients, Mayor Brown also has a core commitment to engaging in responsible business practices 
in its day-to-day operations, including with respect to ESG. ESG policies and best practices are not only moral imperatives, but also commercial necessities, quote unquote. It sounds like Mayor Brown and his clients think ESG considerations are material to investors. Do you disagree with your firm, or is your firm engaged in greenwashing also? I'm very proud of the (laughs) policy that you articulated, although I have nothing to do with it. I'm not a member of the firm. I'm special counsel of the firm, so I'm I'm an employee. But I I think that's an impressive articulation of of an important firm policy, and I practice in the area, and and so I'm certainly very keenly aware uh, of the space. Uh, And again, Companies take this seriously, and they have been taking it seriously for a long time. Uh, The SEC's existing rules require exactly the disclosures that you were just talking about and and has the authority to to do that. This rule goes far beyond uh, the sort of legitimate scope of, of ESG policy that you've articulated. Did you know this was on the website? Sorry? Did you know that this statement was on the website? Yeah, I, I think I've seen it, yes. You've seen it before? I think so. You agree with it? Yes, I said I'm proud of it. But right. again, I don't have anything to do with it because I'm just an employee. You're of proud, but you have nothing to do with it. You're just a lawyer. Um, and, well, partners at the law firm would have a role in articulating the firm's philosophy. And I'm, I'm not Gentle a partner. lady's time has expired. Okay, sounds a little strange. Uh, I yield back the balance of my time. Well, his time has expired. That, again, was Maxine Waters of California conducting that questioning. We will be right back. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour, and now for more news. A big push for urban agriculture. It's one of the nation's largest cities, and now San Francisco is part of the Farm Bureau Federation. It's technically San Francisco County that is the newest part of the California Farm Bureau, but there's only one city in that county, San Francisco. With the growing popularity of urban agriculture, it makes sense that the city by the bay is now part of the community. California Farm Bureau President Shannon Douglas. Our members in December it came before our uh, member delegation, and they did approve adding uh, San Francisco County Farm Bureau, which was exciting, and they shared a little bit about their interest in wanting to um, you know, utilize their urban influence uh, to, to help other farmers. And so we are, you know, looking forward to working with them. It is brand new, um, but uh, was, was an exciting addition, a bit of a surprise to some, but um, an addition that our members approved back in December. She says having an urban member like San Francisco will be a benefit to the Farm Bureau. Yeah, you know, I think it indicates that there is this interest there, and it's something that maybe we're all still trying to figure out. It's still something, as far as, you know, nationally, this interest in, in urban ag, but realizing that that farms can look uh, different from place to place. And there, these urban opportunities are sometimes a great way to, you know, interface with our community. Um, you know, people in San Francisco don't experience a traditional farm like they would uh, in the Valley. Um, and so exposing them to agriculture, uh, you know, we think has value. For a number of years, California's Farm Bureau Federation has worked to educate urban residents about the importance of agriculture and how ag already fits into their daily lives. The CFBF produces a television show and a magazine about the state's broad range of crops, both geared toward a non-farming audience. 
Douglas says the new relationship will also be good for the farming members of CFBF. I think this just kind of shows there's this continued interest in it. And, um, you know, and I think an understanding again from even from our members that really um, our farms can can look different, uh, but also the connection to our urban neighbors has value. And I am heading today to Salt Lake City, Utah for the 2024 American Farm Bureau Annual Convention. It runs through Wednesday, but I'll be posting online and on social media during the weekend. And I'll have stories from the convention here on the Agnet News Hour next week. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Bryant German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.